From the campus of the University of Kentucky, you're listening to Behind the Blue. Slowly but surely, springtime is returning to the bluegrass. As people head back outdoors for yard work and seasonal sports like baseball start up once again, shoulder injuries will be on the rise. Dr. Carolyn Hetrick is Associate Professor of Orthopedic Surgery in the University of Kentucky Department of Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. A shoulder and elbow specialist, Dr. Hetrick treats many of those injuries. I'm Cody Kaiser with UKPR and Marketing, and I'm joined this week by my colleague Olivia Ramirez. On this week's episode of Behind the Blue, Dr. Hetrick joins us to discuss why she chose sports medicine her work leading the world's largest study on shoulder instability, how she advocates for improved treatment and funding for musculoskeletal injuries, and more. Dr. Carolyn Hetrick is our guest this week on Behind the Blue. Thank you very much for being with us. Dr. Hetrick, you are part of the, uh, correct me if I get this wrong, you are part of the UK Orthopedics and Sports Medicine Program. What is your title exactly? I am an associate professor here and primarily focus on sports medicine and shoulder and elbow injuries. You also work with UK athletics in some form or function? Correct. We uh, collaboratively take care of all of the uh, athletic teams. I focus primarily on the the Olympic sports, but I do help out my colleagues with uh, some of their other sports as well. Well, tell us a little bit about how you uh, ended up here at the University of Kentucky. You you are originally from Portland, is that correct? Correct. I, I was born and raised in Portland, Oregon, and did my undergraduate training at Pomona College, which is just outside of Los Angeles. Went from there to uh, University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, decided at, at that point in time to move to New York for residency, uh, where I was spent six years. Uh, after New York, I moved to Nashville, where I spent a year in fellowship at Vanderbilt, and then um, uh, moved to Iowa, where I did my first uh, six and a half years of my career, and then just recently moved here to Kentucky. That is a lot of crisscrossing the country. Correct. Is that, were those just the opportunities that you wanted to go for, for particular areas that you wanted to, places you wanted to, to be, or, or how did... Sure, I've never things? been uh, regionally specific. I've always wanted to go where I felt there was the best, either... Uh, educational or training opportunity or the best uh, job. And so um, I've always been open to living out anywhere uh, and have gone to where I thought I would get the best training. So how did that, uh, you're in Iowa and then you uh, you come here, how did that take place? What what was it about UK specifically or Lexington or, or Kentucky that, that brought you here? Well, University of Kentucky has some um, fantastic people on staff who uh, I was very interested in potentially collaborating with. And uh, after working with, you know, Dr. Latterman and Dr. Johnson over the years and, and uh, getting to know them through national meetings and conferences, uh, it became clear that there might be an opportunity uh, for uh, my work and my research here at University of Kentucky, and so decided to make the move. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about um, the type of research that you do? Uh, so my research is all focused around the shoulder. Uh, I do several different types of research. I do basic science research focused on tendon to, tendon to bone healing, um, and also looking at ways to design 
implants for shoulder replacements and so that they um, are more robust and they don't wear out um, as easily and don't have as many complications. Uh, I also do clinical research where I run a multi-center trial for shoulder instability um, with uh, Brian Wolf out of Iowa. And uh, we've now recruited over a thousand patients into that study, making it the largest one in the world currently. And so most people might think, oh, shoulder injuries, that's going to be more common in swimmers and like baseball players, but how common is it in the general population? Uh, it's, uh, it's very common in different Injuries kind of go with different age groups and different activities. Things like uh, shoulder instability and shoulder pain are very common in, in young athletes, and that's exactly right. Swimming, tennis players, volleyball athletes, football players um, uh, have shoulder and elbow injuries. Um, as uh, people age, uh, rotator cuff injuries tend to be more common in people in the 40s and 60s. Um, and then in the older decades of life, shoulder arthritis becomes more common. So you see a different kind of spectrum activ of activities throughout the different age ranges. It does seem, I, I don't think a lot of people realize, or maybe they just don't think about it. It seems like shoulder and maybe hip, the, there's such a wide area, range of motion that, that you get out of it without even thinking sometimes. I know a lot of people... Um, might do some some type of work or some type of workout where they think uh, I didn't realize I had muscles there that became sore and I think sometimes we do actions that we don't even really think about repetitive motion types of things is it comparatively I mean how difficult is it sometimes to treat injuries because of that range of motion and that level of mobility so you're correct. The shoulder is the most unconstrained joint in the human body, meaning it has the most uh, motion in the most directions. That um, makes it the most prone to dislocation. It has the highest incidence of dislocations of all the major joints. Um, it gives you all the motion that you know that you can do, so you can throw and you can do all your activities of daily living. Um, but because it doesn't have much bony constraint, or um, it's kind of like a golf ball on a golf tee, it relies a lot on balance. So that's balance of the capsule, balance of the muscles, uh, both in terms of flexibility and in terms of strength. And so the shoulder, because of that, is much more complex than some of the other joints in the, in the body, which don't rely on that balance. And so a lot of things aren't as easy as just, you know, fixing a broken bone or fixing a torn tendon or a torn ligament. You really have to look at the rehabilitation afterwards to make sure that that balance is restored um, to give people a pain-free joint. So you mentioned, um, you know, the rehabilitation after. When you're working with athletes who want to return to play, um, what, I guess, how, did, how does the treatment maybe differ so when looking at athletes who want to return to play, I think it's important to, one, to try to quantitatively assess how that athlete is doing, you know, so to look at their strength as compared to their other arm or their other leg um, to see if you can get a baseline of what, what their strength is supposed to look like. A lot of these athletes are so strong that if I, for example, if I test their strength, you know, it seems like they're super strong to me, but if you test it as compared to their contralateral limb, you could see that they actually have some significant strength deficits. So for me, for return to sport testing, I like to make sure that people have um, uh, strength testing and different types of strength testing, usually also looking at kind of balance and speed and endurance, and there's a way to quantify that. 
I think the other important thing with um, athletes returning to play is that with some injuries, it's just a traumatic event and it's a random thing and you can't necessarily prevent that from happening again. But with a lot of injuries, it's an, it's not a traumatic event. It's an overuse injury. And that's usually based on people either lacking that balance um, within their joint beforehand or of having improper technique. And because of that, uh, I think it's also important to try to address what the reason was that they had that injury in the first place to keep them from having a repeat injury down the road. Is there a, uh, we'd kind of talked about this before, um, before today, the idea that, you know, we're at a time now where spring training for a lot of sports uh, are happening, but also uh, a lot of people, you know, are starting to shake the cold off. It's spring, the weather's starting to change a little bit. We're going to get outside more, whether we're going to, uh, you know, uh, have some sort of workout outside or, or going to do yard work or garden or whatever we might do. Are there times of year when you, we start seeing more incidences of, of these types of injuries? That's correct. So you'll start to, as you know, people start playing baseball again, you'll see more baseball injuries. That's exactly right. Overuse injuries and people who are more, you know, the uh, middle age, you might see a lot more of these, these gardening injuries of people going out and breaking up their gardens or farmers starting to, you know, get, prepare their fields. Um, you know, in the fall, you'll see different injuries from raking leaves and, and doing things like that. So I would say definitely with each kind of uh, change of seasons and change of activities, you will see injuries from that. You'll also see injuries associated with different cra like different crazes at the time. So for example, uh, when We Fit came out, you saw a bunch of We Fit injuries. And um, when uh, CrossFit, you, you know, became really popular, you'll see started to see a lot of CrossFit injuries. So depending on the, the, the season and then depending on kind of what's the popular thing to do, you'll see uh, increase in incidence in those things, those boards. What are some things that you might suggest to, you know, people that aren't specifically athletes training who might have a better kind of understanding of that and, and a better idea of how to pace for people who don't necessarily think in those regards or don't think about the potential of, of causing those injuries, what are some things you might suggest that people keep in mind? For a lot of people who on a daily basis might not be super active or work out a lot, when they do need have an event coming up which is going to be more physically stressful, whether that be, you know, they want to spend an entire weekend in the garden or a whole weekend, you know, chopping wood or, or doing something like that around the house, um, the best thing to do would be to somewhat either work towards that or to break it up. And so that they can either increase their abilities kind of slowly over time or try to spread that out a little bit. Because if you um, aren't used to doing a lot and then all of a sudden go out and spend 12 hours chopping wood, you're gonna be hurting the next day. So how did you come to choose um, orthopedics and sports medicine as your specialty? And then what kind of sparked your interest in the shoulder and elbow? Uh, I have a, a very similar story to most or a lot of orthopedic surgeons. I um, had an injury myself when I was in high school. I um, had an injury to, to my wrist, which eventually required surgery. And I absolutely loved my orthopedic surgeon. He was kind of this grumpy old guy. And uh, he, he explained things to me and let me hang out with him in his office. And 
I liked what he did, and then I liked kind of who his patients were. You know, looking around the waiting room, it was lots of, um, you know, people like me at that point who was a young high school athlete, and there was, you know, a lot of other people who wanted to kind of get back to life and get better. Um, so kept that kind of in the back of my mind. I kept having athletic injuries playing sports in college, and so kept, uh, unfortunately, familiar, familiarizing myself with other orthopedic surgeons. Uh, when I went to medical school, I had a pretty good idea that that's what I wanted to do. And um, so I started doing research right away with uh, the chair of orthopedics at University of Washington. His name's Dr. Fred Frederick Matson, and he was an excellent mentor, and he's a shoulder surgeon. So spent um, a lot of time with him and a lot of time, you know, working on different research projects, dissecting shoulders, learning the mechanics, and um, have kind of been hooked on the shoulder ever since. When you got your master's in public health, did you know you wanted to do musculoskeletal, like that that was one of the issues you would be focused on, or no? Um, uh, I'm somebody that has a lot of interests, and so uh, even predating medical school, I had a lot of interest in global health, and um, uh, when I was in high school, did a long service trip to Mexico and um, in college did some service uh, down in Ecuador. And uh, so I had this global health interest. Um, so I had some interest in, in getting a public health degree for a long time from that. Uh, when I was in residency, I did a year-long research fellowship to spend more time kind of focusing on research. And during that time, um, I was able to get a master's in public health, and so I did both things. I wanted to learn more research methodology to make sure that I did better quality research so that um, my study design would be better, that I would understand how to analyze, analyze and interpret data better, and then also was able to do some uh, kind of course, coursework on uh, global health and then health policy as well. And how do you use your... MPH now combined with your MD. You do some like uh, Capitol Hill research days. Correct. So I use it a, a lot for research. So the research methodology classes help quite a bit. Um, the health policy aspect of things um, also comes is used quite a bit as well. I don't do as much global health as I used to just due to time commitments, but uh, have been engaged through the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons in doing um, uh, kind of national health policy work. So working within our um, academy or with our academy to make sure that our patients are um, uh, taken care of uh, in the best ways possible. And, and oftentimes that's uh, trying to petition for certain uh, laws to be passed. So we recently worked on a couple of sports medicine bills that dealt with um, uh, taking care of athletes across state lines and being able to um, take appropriate medications to take care of athletes across state lines. So taking a limited small prescription of, uh, of pain medication in case somebody gets hurt and things like that. Um, and then also working on um, laws which we feel are not good for our patients. So um, uh, there were certain parts uh, of, of the health care reform bill that um, we felt would be better if they would be tweaked a little bit, and so working on that side. So both working for things and then also trying to get some things changed. It seems like sometimes when you think about research and pr procuring funds for research that sometimes that's really difficult in light of being able to show some type of tangible 
um, kind of uh, e easy to kind of see result, but it seems like advocacy for patients is one of those strong things that you can use as an example, a really ready to go example of like why you need this funding. Have you found that that's Correct. So we used to, or we've, we've had in the past with our academy was Research Capital Hill Days, and it was exactly that, where um, I was able to go and take patients of mine, um, and you, you go and you visit your local congressmen and senators, and the patients tell their story, and then you're able to tell the story of how your research enabled that patient to have their care or to, and to, and to do as well as they're doing. Um, last year, I took um, a, a 80 year old woman who I'd done a shoulder replacement on, and she was then able to go river rafting in California, and you know was able to travel around the country, you know, taking care of her own bags and taking care of her grandkids and traveling and kind of leading a great life. Um, and so, them being able to see that we're actually able to use the funds that they're giving us to translate that into patient care, so that patients. Um, you know, have cures that they're able to get back to their activities of daily living and they're able to get back to work is, um, is really important. Um, one of the most difficult things for a researcher, obviously, is obtaining funds and, and getting funding for your research. And that's particularly tough now that, you know, healthcare funding has decreased and, um, you know, different challenges in the economy. And um, so that's something that we also do um, often is try to make sure that, that people understand that funding research is what makes changes in medicine happen. It's what, why that there's advancements and um, it also powers a huge portion of the economy. And so trying to make sure that they do that and make sure that their next generation of researchers are funded is important. How has technology changed the type of work that goes into, uh, I, I guess, some of these procedures? Uh, ha, ha, do you see that, that like, some of the, the advances that are being made faster and faster, does that, uh, how is, have you, how have you seen that change in the last few years uh, as far as, like, the, the quality of results that you can get with patients? I would say that that technology is 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 incredibly important, and you can see that in just about every aspect of of what we do. In terms of you know implant design, where they now have ways to to test implants better than ever before through through computer modeling and computer simulations, through the actual implants themselves, they are able to make things that that are actually physically stronger and that have less wear and have better care, wear characteristics and can last longer for patients. Uh, they also, through the the use of technology, were able to better assess, you know, what our patients are doing. So we have different kind of tools which we could use to, to measure motion and measure strength and look at what they're doing. Uh, technology is also going to play an important part in the future, especially in, in you know, more disadvantaged populations as we're going to be able to do things like physical therapy, you know, over, you know, you know, Skype or FaceTime and um, uh, do things more remotely and able to save patients than those costs for transportation and that time off of work. And uh, because of that, I think technology will come into play more and more. As far as your work goes, what's the what are the next steps? Where, where do you see things for, for what you're doing? What, what, what's going on over the next six months or next year or next two years? 
I think all of my work, the, the general focus is, is how do we make patients better? How do we uh, make their repairs stronger? How do we make them more functional um, so that they can get kind of the most out of their life moving forward, wherever that is, whether that's a young athlete who we want to be able to get back to performing highly at sports or whether that's an old person who we want to be able to, you know, do their activities of daily living and, and, and you know, play, pick up their grandchildren. Um, and I think in the next six to six to 12 months, we're um, actively working on some things here at the University of Kentucky and, and better understanding all the different factors that, that contribute to success after shoulder replacements. And we're specifically looking at the scapula or the shoulder blade right now. And it's all part of the upper limb girdle and how the motion in, in that with your scapula may affect your, your results after shoulder replacement. Um, and so I think that hopefully we'll have a better idea of that in that time period. Um, we're actually going to be able to start analyzing more of our data for our shoulder instability cohort. We have over 500 patients now that we have two-year data on, and so we're going to be able to start processing some of that and having a better idea on what the predictors are of good outcomes um, after, shoulder, after surgery for shoulder instability. And how do you like living in Lexington and in Kentucky? I think Lexington is uh, is really beautiful, especially with the green the kind of the green horse fields and all the trees. Uh, so we have uh, really enjoyed living here. We find it to be a great size of city. So it still kind of has some aspects of a small town, and we're still able to to live in an area where we feel a little bit you know isolated, but yet you know isn't that far for me to get to work or to go out to dinner and uh, kind of enjoy the benefits of city life. You had mentioned when we talked when you first joined the team that part of what interested you in coming to UK was the focus on research. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, one of the great things about the University of Kentucky was that there uh, still is that focus on research and there still is that focus on um, uh, increasing patient care that and developing that next line of, of researchers uh, that was very attractive to me when I was looking at taking the job here. And um, since I've started, I've definitely found that environment to be true where, or that to be true where the environment is very supportive of, of research. There's excellent collaborators and um, uh, the administration doesn't only say, that, you know, that they're interested in research, but they actually put resources to make sure that that happens. So it's been, it's been uh, a uh, great place to uh, uh, keep building my uh, career. Dr. Carolyn Hetrick, thank you very much for being with us. We appreciate it, and uh, good luck with uh, both the research and the uh, patient care and also the advocacy work that you do as well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Behind the Blue. For more information about this episode or any other episode, visit us online at uky.edu slash behindtheblue. You can send questions or comments via email to behindtheblue at uky.edu or tweet your questions using hashtag behindtheblue. Behind the Blue is a joint production of University of Kentucky Public Relations and Marketing and UK Healthcare.